Hello and welcome to episode 308 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thanks for joining me today, slightly belatedly again, for the second and concluding part of our story from Bournemouth on the south coast of England. The episode is sponsored by Vintage Cash Cow. I love a cold case that's finally solved thanks to a clue hidden in a box. But what if you, or maybe your parents, have cupboards of nice things that haven't seen the light of day in years? Vintage Cash Cow makes selling your old valuables less of an effort and they've paid out over £10 million to customers. Sign up and you'll get a free postage pack. Then fill a box for Vintage Cash Cow or book a collection, both at no cost. You can send jewellery, cameras, coins, vintage toys and a load of other bits. Within a week you'll have a cash offer and there's no twist in the tail. You can accept the valuation and enjoy a fresh start knowing your items won't go to waste or get them refunded for free. The clock is ticking to earn extra on your first box. Vintage Cash Cow is offering a £20 bonus for listeners with the code TRUE. Just head to vintagecashcow.co.uk now, enter the code TRUE on the sign-up page and get £20 extra when you sell. That's vintagecashcow.co.uk and enter the code TRUE. Just think what you might find during the clear-out. Filling a box of Vintage Cash Cow sounds like a good way to begin a big job. That's how detectives work. Just start small. Good luck. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So how often do you get fixated on your problems rather than think about solutions? I know that I'm like this sometimes and especially with work issues. I had one last week. I couldn't get rid of it in my mind and it just affected all other aspects of my life. I think it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with life's challenges. And this is where therapy can help, where you can talk freely and openly to someone who really listens to you and you can make that shift from focusing on the problem to finding the solutions to problems. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a fantastic option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable and entirely online. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash truecrime today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash truecrime. So there's no need to set the context of the story today as we are continuing the case from Bournemouth last week. If you want, we could just guess the month and year based on your memory. (laughs) It was July 2002. This is when 26-year-old Korean student, Jong Ok Shin, who was known to her friends as Oki, had been walking home from a night out to celebrate finishing exams. After leaving her friends for the short walk to her door, at about 2.50am, Oki was attacked, stabbed three times and died shortly afterwards, just metres from her door. Before she died, despite her injuries, she managed to say that she'd been attacked from behind and the person who attacked her was a man in a mask, adding, I ran off and saw my own blood. These were the last words Oki ever said. And last week, we heard how after three trials, local heroin addict Omar Bengua was found guilty of murder 
and is still in prison for the crime 20 years later. But last week we discussed how many people don't think Bengua is guilty of this crime, a view that I sympathise with. So if Bengua wasn't responsible for Oki's murder, then just who was? The person referred to in Bengua's second appeal as a potential suspect in Oki's murder was a man called Daniel Retivo, a very strange and highly dangerous man who was on the streets of Bournemouth on the night that Oki was murdered in July 2002. He'd moved to England and settled in Bournemouth in March 2002 and on the 29th of August 2002, Dorset police were alerted to his presence by the authorities in Italy who said that he should be investigated for the Oki murder. Dorset police replied to their Italian law enforcement counterparts in September 2002, telling them there was no need to worry about Restivo, as they'd already found the murderer of Oki, Bengua. So why were Italian police so concerned about Restivo that they alerted the local police in England? Well, he was suspected of murdering 16-year-old Eliza Claps who went missing after meeting Restivo, who was then 21, at the Holy Trinity Church in Potenza, about 225 miles south of Rome, after Mass on the 12th of September 1993. Detectives believed he'd fallen for Elisa, who had then rejected him. He told detectives that he hadn't killed Elisa, he'd seen her leave the church, and Italian detectives, although suspicious, did not have the evidence to charge him with murder. In 1995, he was convicted in Italy of giving false information about an injury to his hand on the day that Eliza disappeared at the church. Police and Italian media suspected that he killed her, but there was no body and there wasn't the evidence to convict him of the crime but they were absolutely right to classify him as highly dangerous. As in November 2002, Restivo struck in Bournemouth, murdering his neighbour, 48-year-old Heather Barnett. Heather worked as a seamstress at home, and she knew Restivo, who had popped into her house earlier in the month to talk about having some curtains made for his then-girlfriend, who lived just over the road but he returned to her house on the 12th of November and this time he violently killed Heather with a hammer in the upstairs bathroom before cutting off her breasts, laying them beside her body. He also placed the cut hair of another woman in her right hand and this is horrendous. Heather's body was discovered by her children, a boy and a girl aged 11 and 14, when they returned home from school that day. Distraught at what they'd seen, they ran from the house where they were comforted by Restivo and his partner before the police were called. The door was open, there was no sign of forced entry, though there was a sign of a struggle in Heather's house, and detectives believed that Heather had known her killer. In terms of when the murder had taken place, they believed it had been soon after Heather had taken her children to school that morning. Restivo was immediately a suspect, and as police found footprints in blood at the murder scene, detectives asked to see his trainers, and they found the Nike footwear 
was in bleach. With Restivo just saying that's because his shoes were dirty, he was just cleaning them with nothing suspicious. Over the coming weeks, months and years, as detectives continued to watch Restivo, they found out he had a fascination with women's hair and he admitted he loved the texture, the smell and they cut women's hair complete strangers on buses and in other public places. And there was other strange and disturbing behaviour as Restivo went to the park on a number of occasions where he stalked lone women. On one May day, although it was very warm outside, Restivo was wearing a hoodie over his head and waterproof over trousers. On that day, once his car was searched, police found an identical change of clothing, scissors, a filleting knife, gloves and a balaclava. Just what had he been planning to do? Then in 2008, a big breakthrough, when DNA evidence was found linking Heather to Restivo, who was still living in the same house opposite the one where Heather had been murdered. Scientists made a clear link between DNA material found on a green towel recovered from Heather's house and Restivo. But he argued this was from his earlier visit and the authorities decided that this evidence wasn't strong enough to charge him with murder. Then we forward wind to 2010 in Italy. There was a leak in the church roof where Restivo had met Eliza Claps. And in the loft, hidden behind a pile of tiles, lay the body of Eliza. She'd been stabbed and locks of hair had been placed in both her hands and DNA evidence linked Eliza to Restivo. And this finally was accused of British police to charge Restivo over the murder back in 2002 of Heather Barnett. In May 2011, Restivo was found guilty of the murder of Heather, with the judge sentencing him to spend the rest of his life in prison. Speaking outside court, Heather's sister, Denise, told how her sister was a feisty woman with a sense of humour who loved her children very, very much, adding, Heather would have been horrified by the cruel and callous way that Restivo designed her murder and mutilation so her children would find her body on return from school. And poor Eliza Claps was finally buried in Italy in the same week that Restivo was found guilty of Heather's murder. He was extradited to Italy where he was found guilty of Eliza's murder and Eliza's mum and family begged him to tell the truth about what had happened to their daughter but of course he wouldn't do so. He would not provide the family with the detail that they felt they needed to hear from him. So Restivo is a double murderer at least but did he kill Oki too? On the night that Oki was murdered there is CCTV image of a man resembling Restivo walking along Charminster Road, Bournemouth, towards the murder scene at six minutes past the murder, which was 2.50am. At first, it was not thought possible for this to be Restivo, until it was discovered that it only took about five minutes to walk around the block from the murder scene to where he was seen. I think it's fair to say he is the face only a mother can love, 
and he was wearing dark glasses and a satchel carried over the left shoulder. Just what was in that satchel? If you recall, the knife used to kill Oki was a single-edged, 14 to 15 centimetres long and tapering to the point. Now this is identical to the knife found on Restivo when he was caught stalking women in the park back in 2004. And after we've heard about Restivo's hair fetish, it transpires that hair from a stranger was left at the scene of the crime, presumably by the person who murdered Oki, on the pavement at the exact spot where she had been left for dead. DCI Kevin Connolly of Dorset Police and the senior detective managing the Oki murder investigation said, Dorset Police can confirm that during the initial investigation into Yong Okay Shin's murder, approximately 2,000 items were recovered, including many from the surrounding area, typical with the findings of any major crime investigation. This included an extremely small quantity of animal hair, combined with uncut human hair, which was located a distance away from the victim on Malmesbury Park Road. They were not found next to the victim or on the victim. They were not attributed to the victim or the instance in any way, and following examination, were excluded from the investigation. This position has not changed. So there we are then, that's the official view from the police. Let's look at any more potential evidence potentially linking Restivo to this crime. You will recall in her final words that Oki told a doctor that her attacker was wearing a mask. Restivo had a balaclava with him when he was arrested. Oki was an English language student and her English, it was okay but it wasn't fluent by any means. And so when she had said a mask, had she meant balaclava? Did he have a balaclava in his satchel when we saw him on CCTV that evening? And had this man with the balaclava that Oki was referring to to medics, was this Restivo, who lived just three roads away from where Oki was murdered? Another factor is that Oki was killed on the 12th of the month. Both Heather Barnett and Eliza Claps were also killed on the 12th of the month. Did this date have some sort of significance for Restivo, or is it just a terrible coincidence? And let's just take a look at one final piece of information. Restivo has, as you can imagine, been connected with a number of crimes across Europe. Who knows if he is guilty of those. But maybe most significantly for us today is to look at just one, just one case. That's 27-year-old Korean student Erika Ansamin, who went missing in Italy. A picture of Erika was found on Restivo's computer. So another Korean student who went missing, a picture was found on Restivo's computer. Just coincidence or something more? I think there's a lot of evidence pointing at Restivo. I wonder if you agree. But there are other things to consider too. We spoke last week about Oki's ex-boyfriend who was arrested and released early in the investigation. Were there other suspects from within the local Korean community in Bournemouth? Oki had a part-time cleaning job at Chase Manhattan Bank and her work colleague and friend there 
spoke in her witness statement about the unwanted presence of a young Korean man who often waited by the entrance of the bank when they were about to finish work and this man approached Oki, she saw him approach Oki at least six times. And she noticed a change. She said at first Oki would chat to him, but later she didn't want to talk to him at all anymore and she would get on her bike and she would quickly ride away. And Oki had told her too how she really didn't like this man and how he was a nuisance to her. This man was identified as, excuse my pronunciation, Sang Kyun Cho, who was a Korean language student studying English and also lived in the Charminster area of Bournemouth where Oki was killed. It was said that he would wait for another young woman he liked outside her house until 2 or 3am when she had gone to a nightclub. Creepy behaviour, right? A fellow student confirmed this woman wasn't his girlfriend, so they saw this behaviour as super strange, and it was. He also showed signs of aggression, especially to women. One of his teachers told how she was forced to remove him from a classroom, following his aggressive behaviour to two female students earlier in 2002. And on the night Oki was murdered, the landlady of his digs was able to state for sure that he was not in his room between 11 and midnight, maybe later. So was he out there on the streets? Was he out there looking for Oki? The police did interview him twice, but presumably they were content that he was not responsible for murder. And what about the general area of Bournemouth where Oki was killed? It's a student area, sure, but it's not just a student area, but it's a place with lots of multi-occupancy flats at the lower end of the accommodation market. This naturally meant it had quite a transient community, and some of these people were somewhat down on their luck or struggling with their lives at the time. Witness statements revealed there were certainly some random people in the area at this time who caused concern to other residents. One describes the behaviour of one man in the street as being so potentially threatening that she had made her way home and sat in darkness for 10 minutes so this individual would not associate the light illuminating her with entering the flat. And there was certainly some accommodation in the area at the time used by those returned to their community following stays in prison or other secure accommodation. We are of course on this podcast not pointing fingers at any person or group, but it's very clear that there is the possibility that Oki could well have been attacked by someone, could have been a one-off attack, who is still unknown to the police. And finally, not long before her death, Oki had become very close to a Spanish student at the language school, with whom she was seen on at least one occasion to publicly kiss and hug at the Richmond Arms public house. You remember the same pub we heard last week, where it was alleged that Bengua made some unpleasant comments about Korean women. So what happened to this Spanish student? Was he ever looked at by the police? It's unclear. And before we finish today, let's recall the man who has spent the last 20 years in prison protesting his innocence about a crime he says he never committed. Last year, talking to prison about the CCTV we discussed before, 
which appears to exonerate him, he is understandably bitter about his predicament, saying, All I ever wanted was the truth to come out. I'm innocent. I've been protesting my innocence for 19 years. It's disgusting how I've been treated. They've had the evidence to prove my innocence from day one. And since I was arrested, I said that I'm on the CCTV and they actually had it all the time. That is shocking. And talking about the same piece of CCTV, journalist Bronner Munro, who has made two documentaries on this case, commented on this potential evidence to the justice gap, saying, The police disclosed the CCTV footage to Amy, that's Omar Benguar's sister, but they've made her legal team sign a waiver, saying that they were not allowed to show this to anyone else without Dorset Police's permission. We can't actually view it, and we cannot broadcast it. I wouldn't do anything in good faith to jeopardise this man's right to justice by broadcasting something, but essentially, that's Omar's alibi. She goes on to accuse the police of picking and choosing what they show and what they don't show. She says, If this man is Omar Benguar, then in the interests of justice, there should be an obligation to make that available. There is a huge public interest in this. So what do you make of what we've heard over these last two weeks? And more importantly, who killed Jong Ok Shin on that summer's evening in Bournemouth? Whilst podcasts like this and others discuss who could be responsible, we have to remember that this is real people, it's a real case, and Oki's family and friends desperately want some certainty. I can't imagine how it must feel to see someone sent to prison for the murder of someone you love, and yet all this doubt and uncertainty continues to persist. As I made clear last week, I'm not persuaded for one moment that the conviction of Benguia is a safe one. How can it be when the star witness for the prosecution is the person known as Bibi, who after numerous lies finally settled on her version of the truth at the three trials, although even that version was stretched after the final trial with her appearance on the Jeremy Carl show and her magazine article where she now claimed to have actually seen the stabbing and then she said she hadn't. It was just almost her truth that had emerged over time. And the major nagging doubt that I can't forget and I can't get over is how a heroin stroke crack addict can have such amazing recall of times and dates so long after an incident. In my very limited experience of this, the witness who helped run the crack house on St. Clement's Road, the place, if you recall, where Bengua allegedly visited straight after the murder, seems much more credible to me when she says, There was always a constant stream of visitors to the flat day and night. Many I cannot recall even who they were or what their names are. I'm a crack cocaine and heroin addict myself. Due to my habits, days and months roll into one, and I cannot recall many things that have occurred. I've been questioned as to my whereabouts on the evening of the 11th of July. I can honestly say I have no recollection of that night, where I was, or what I was doing.
But someone killed Oki. So just who was it? And will her family and friends ever get the real final closure that surely they deserve? Thank you so much for joining me today for this delayed episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please just head to the Facebook group. And to support the show, please join me at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash UK True Crime and you can join our community and get all the benefits from Patreon. Okay, so that's all from me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday next week, please do take it easy. And most of all, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.